0: The set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It is Thursday, March 11th, and we are just delighted that you are joining us today. If you have a financial question, all you need to do is send us an email, askjill at jillonmoney.com, Jill at jillonmoney.com. Here is a note from Heather who says, I would be interested in a podcast about the implications of finances um, when deciding to get married versus being a domestic partner. My state of Minnesota does not acknowledge domestic partnerships, so some of the benefits are not provided. I am a young widow with a child. Oh, gosh, that's terrible. And I've wondered if there's any financial benefit to getting married again. By getting married, you're you're basically on the financial hook with your spouse for any burden that uh, he or she might incur in the future, and tax brackets are different. Are there any other underlying pros and cons to marriage when looking at it from a financial perspective? Heather, God bless you with that kind of question. So here's the deal. There are usually benefits, mostly benefits of getting married, okay? Okay. The tax code is really created to support marriage. I wouldn't get too nuts about the the actual brackets for, for taxes because that can shift. And obviously, it depends on whether someone's making more or less, whether that's good or bad. The entire estate tax law is structured around being married, not being a domestic partner. So that's number one. It's much easier to pass assets back and forth. And the other aspect is that the burdens that you might incur can actually be solved ahead of time. In other words, if you marry or you intend to marry somebody who has got a whole bunch of debt and you get married, you can actually have a prenup that will anticipate if there's anything that goes south in this relationship, you take your debt, I take my assets, and we move on our way. I think that um, generally speaking, most planners, most CFPs, and most tax accountants will tell you that usually the system favors marriage over domestic partnership. Also, you know, there're also some some health insurance plans that will only allow you to extend benefits if you are married. Now, a lot of big companies extend domestic partnership benefits, that's fine. But a lot of companies they don't allow that. So, you know, and when you think about getting married, even the benefits at work, you know, sometimes you can get spousal life insurance, and there's there's a lot of um, a lot of goodies that are socked away. Okay, here is a question from Norman, who's been listening to the podcast every morning for the last year. He says it's an important part of his waking up routine. That's so nice. I've learned a lot and I find it comforting during this difficult time. So here's the question. For 2021, he projects a taxable income of approximately $25,000 since he recently retired. He says, this is going to result in a much lower tax bracket than when I start full social security next year, which will be age 70 and then start required minimum distributions two years after that. Okay. Okay here's the question it looks like. Since long-term capital gains are taxed at a 0% tax rate for income up to $80,000 for a married couple, I see two unique planning opportunities for 2021. Number one, do a Roth conversion of $55,000, which keeps me in the 12% tax bracket and results in a federal tax of approximately 9200 Yeah, I'm on board with that. That's fantastic. That's great. Number two generate a long-term capital gain of $55,000 from my taxable account, which will not be taxable since it will still keep me in the 12% bracket. The resulting federal tax is approximately $2,600. Not to overly complicate this, but state taxes will be negligible on the Roth conversion, blah, blah, blah. I would appreciate any thoughts. Now, Mark, is he thinking about this right? Because if you do the long-term capital gains at zero and then you also do the conversion, has he got the math right? Is that is that right to you? I think it is too. I just want to double check that for some reason that if you do the long-term capital gains that you're not going to have, If okay, so that gets done at 0%, but then you're going to have income of 80000 See, I think that it works. I think it does work. I mean, I think the math works for it. So I think that, yes, if you wouldn't mind, I just want you to double check because I'm a complete wimp, but it seems to me that that's the right thing. I just want to make sure we don't do both of those things and then pop you into some unexpected tax bracket. But I think you're right. So that seems good to me. Um, Okay. Here is a note from Tim. His wife is 36. He's 33. Um, they make seventy grand a year after taxes. They spend $35,000 annually. They've got three kids under the age of five. So stop your complaining, Mark. You only have one kid under the age of five. They fully fund their Roth IRAs and their 529 accounts. And uh, it's amazing. Let's see. They've got $110,000 in a traditional 403B, a hundred dollars in Roths, plus another twenty dollars of Tax deferred retirement, a brokerage account, an emergency fund, and some other cash. They got about, let's say, about a hundred grand in cash. A home, two hundred thousand with no mortgage, and they've got a net worth of five hundred fifty thousand dollars. Is that unbelievable? That's amazing. Um, okay, they want to add to their current home, or they want to buy a new home for no more than four hundred thousand. We have about thirty four thousand saved up for a new house. That's consisting of the entire brokerage account. and They don't contribute anymore. Okay. My question, what should we do with our cash or where should we put our future savings above and beyond the retirement account contributions? Here is a question. If you fully fund your 529 accounts, what do you mean by fully fund? Are you each putting in 15,000 per kid per year? I mean, if you are, that's great. You didn't give me a total value on the 529 accounts. But I think that if you if, if education is important to you, then the surplus cash would be to top off your 529 accounts, three accounts, three kids, a lot of money. And if you're just talking about having maximum flexibility, then sure, I would make this a non-retirement account contribution. Do you also have an opportunity to fully fund your traditional 403B? So I think there's something here. I feel like I'm missing one piece of information, but if you've got surplus cash, I would first make sure I'm that both of you are maxing your retirement contributions, which would be your traditional and your Roth. Now, remember on the Roth, um, you didn't give me your gross income, but I'm pretty sure that you're able to do this because the phase out for married filing jointly starts at $198,000. So I think that first retirement, then 529, then brokerage. That would be my guess as far as the, the best way for you to approach this. All right, here we go. This is from Evan. My wife is nine years older than I am. He's 39. She's 48. I manage her money because she has no interest in finances. And I'm basically planning all of our retirement goals around my age. Is that the right approach? The understanding is that we will have some flexibility if I want to work longer than her. Yeah, I guess. I mean, depends. Like, does she love what she does? I mean, you may want to peg her age because that's going to come first. And by the way, when you're doing your retirement planning, I would just look at it, say, maybe she says she wants to be 65, maybe it's, then you would just plan on working longer. So you can, you can break it out. The question is, should we consider um, our 401k together as a single block of retirement and it doesn't really matter what holds what? Yeah, absolutely is fine. Um, The only difference is that when, you know, if for some reason you were to predecease her, then things would have to change around. But yeah, don't worry about that. Question three, do you recommend sticking to a single allocation approach across all retirement and non-retirement accounts? We are currently 90-10 stocks, bonds in every account. Oh my gosh. I mean, like that's pretty aggressive, but if you're comfortable with it, I guess that's fine. Um, Generally speaking, what we would say is that the last money you would ever access would be Roth money. That could have the most aggressive portfolio allocation then the next would be a tax deferred account like a 401k or a traditional IRA and then a brokerage account but you know you're sort of pressing on the accelerator you're going pretty quick here and i would say this that it is all well and good to be 90/10 in an up market but how are you going to feel if things go down i would prefer you maybe to have a if you're going to have that kind of very aggressive portfolio Make sure that you've got plenty of cash on hand so you're never forced to sell, and then you're going to have to scale the risk back as you get closer to needing the money. Yeah, I mean, Mark makes a good point. So, yeah, I mean, it's great to be 90-10, and it's fine if you want to say that you're 90% in stock in one versus 10% bonds in another. It's just that anything that's taxable to you, any taxable money should be carefully manage. So if you have a taxable bond account, make sure that that's in a retirement account so it doesn't create income for you. So it doesn't really matter, but sometimes people just do it because it's easier to manage in just sort of say a 90-10, 90-10, 90-10. Whatever really works for you is fine, but anything that's spinning out income, you try to keep that in a retirement account so you don't have to pay tax on it currently. Make sense? Good. Okay, last question is from Scott, and the subject is national debt. <laughs> I love these questions because they start always start with a declarative sentence, and here it is. The U.S. government spends like there is no tomorrow. Is there any limit to how much debt the government can take on? At what level does the debt become too great? What would happen if interest rates increased and the federal government went bankrupt? Thanks. I listen to you frequently on KYW Radio in Philadelphia. Well, um, there is no limit. At what level does the debt become too great? At the level at which it starts to become a problem whereby interest rates rise and the idea of crowding out starts to come into play. What does that mean? It means that people will say that if interest rates rise dramatically, instead of investing in a company For example, uh, an investor might say, well, I'll just invest in government bonds because they're paying so much. If the interest rates increase, the federal government is not going bankrupt. So that's good news. It just doesn't happen. The level at which this all starts to become problematic is in dispute because it used to be when they said, oh, well, you know, if it's 100 percent, if your debt is 100 percent of GDP, it's a problem, except we're there already and it's not a problem. So it's a problem when it becomes a problem. When we talk about the U.S. government spending like there's no tomorrow, I always worry about those kinds of statements. I mean, that may be true, but it's also true that like in a pandemic, one would like to think that you would spend money to help people who need help. And the funny thing about government spending is that everyone thinks like, oh, governments spend too much money. Usually that has to do with um, when it's something I care about. And so all of a sudden it said, well, you know, I think if it's fine for this thing, but not that thing. So, you know, I hate to beat up on the government. It's not the most efficient place in the world all the time, but they do good stuff like $6 trillion going out to Americans who are in need right now is pretty darn good. That seems to me a, a very wise thing to do. Anyway, we thank you so much for listening today. And it has been a, a fantastic show. As always, your questions are greatly appreciated. If you wouldn't mind, if you think this program is fun and interesting and informative, why don't you hook some other people on it? We're trying to expand our audience one listener at a time. Send us your emails, Ask Jill at jillonmoney.com and tell us if you want to come on the program with us. Wash your hands, wear your masks, maintain your physical distancing, and do me a favor, do something nice for someone else today. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you tomorrow.